Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery, who makes sophisticated elk-free drinks that still have all the taste of a good time. G&T without the tears, whiskey without the wobbles, and other delicious cocktails too. Switching the ritual instead of ditching the ritual is so much easier. Stay in high spirits, keep a clear mind, head to mondaydistillery.com for more. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm really, really excited about this next guest. His name is Ryan Dusick. He was the former drummer and founding member of the band Maroon 5. He's now a therapist, an amazing family and marriage counsellor and therapist, also works with substance abuse. He's had a long history with alcohol. He's got a new book coming out called Harder to Breathe, which I'm making my way through at the moment, which is amazing. And uh, I'm just so honoured to have you on the podcast today, Ryan. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on here. Um, Yes. So obviously you've got a very big story and, you know, we'll try and cover most of it as much as we can. But I guess like with everyone I've had on this podcast, can you tell us when you started drinking alcohol and and how that came about for you? Yeah, I was kind of a uh, late bloomer, as they say, in terms of my drinking. Uh, I didn't drink as a teenager when everyone else was partying. I was kind of uh, what we'd call straight edge in the 90s. Mm -hmm. 
my family had an, a, you know, kind of an attitude about drinking and drugs that was like, it's all bad. Uh, so that's kind of how I was raised with it. And I wasn't really that into it. Uh, in my twenties, I started kind of loosening the reins on that a little bit. And it was mostly just, uh, at first romantic, you know, just, it was fun and it was, uh, going out with friends and to facilitate a, a good time. Mm-hmm. Right. It wasn't any of the the dark stuff that came later. Um, when I, you know, I was in a band obviously. And when we went on the road, uh, the drinking wasn't to the degree that it was problematic yet, I think in those days, but definitely it became a little bit more of an escape when we had a night off. There was a lot of pressure, you know, night after night performing. Um, and you know, when you, when you have a moment to kind of time went on and let off some steam, that's when it started to become a little bit heavier drinking. Um, I don't really remember drinking to the point of being, you know, drunk or hungover on stage when I was performing in those days. Uh, but certainly on nights off. But when that whole career ended, when I went through a really dark time in my life, when I was grieving the loss of that identity and I had physical pain, I had emotional pain, uh, psychological things that were going on that I couldn't even really understand at that time. Mm. Uh, that's when alcohol became more of a coping mechanism, more of a, an escape. Like I'm completely like just trying to kind of uh, check out a uh, mm. total oblivion was sort of the the destination that I was seeking when I would when I would drink, and so it, it got pretty pretty heavy and pretty dark for a couple years there. And then I went through a phase where I would say probably most alcoholics go through, which is thinking I have it under control. You know, mm-hmm. thinking uh, you know I just have to moderate and I just have to kind of figure out a way to live a normal life uh, that includes alcohol, but. As it always does, it got worse over time and uh, took me to some really humbling places at the end of my drinking. It was about a decade of of um, alcoholism at its uh, at its worst before I really kind of hit a spiritual bottom and and then sought recovery. Mm. Was it daily drinking? How did the drinking look for you? Uh, it was at the end, at the very end, but for the longest time, I was able to sort of rationalize the fact that it wasn't always daily. Like I would take breaks. Uh, you know, it was definitely binge drinking. Like I would go through periods or benders, you know, periods where I would drink heavily for a few days or even a week every day. And then I would come to my senses and and say, Oh, I got to clean up. I got to stop. And, or because I had some event coming up that I needed to be sober for or something. And I was able to stop, you know, for a time, or at least for a few days or a week or whatever. Uh, so I, I sort of deluded myself into believing that that meant that I had it under control. Mm-hmm. But as time went on, of course, those times when I was drinking, uh, when I was not drinking became less and less. And the times when I was drinking became heavier and heavier until it was just, uh, it, like I said, at the very end, it was, it was every day, even if I intended not to, it, I would end up drinking. Yeah. It's funny those days where you're like, okay, I'm not doing it today. I'm absolutely not doing it today. And then somehow it's just kind of, I call it the sneaky bitch. You know, the <laughs> sneaky bitch comes in and it just tricks you in some way. There's always some way that's like the weather's right or the sun's out or there's friends around, you know, there's all, it always manages to creep in. And then before you know it, you're back right back where you didn't want to be. How are you feeling about yourself? So like the day after, you know, drinking and after saying that you, you weren't going to do it again, how, how are you feeling to Towards yourself. Well, I got into a cycle where I was going through withdrawals, you know, so obviously not feeling really very well at all. I would have to kind of detox myself every time I would stop. Um, 
so it got complicated there for a while. I was using like benzos, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Onapin, Xanax, that kind of thing. Those were never my, my drug of choice. Uh, alcohol was definitely number one, but I would use it as if I were going through detox in the hospital, you know, I would stop drinking and I would use benzos for a couple of days to like literally go through detox. Um, that's how bad it was. And so obviously going through withdrawals, that's no fun. But on top of that is just, you know, a level of shame, of course. And, mm-hmm. uh, and just, you know, the pain that would come in, it was, it was very, for years there, you know, I, I, like I said, I wasn't even aware of what was going on for me psychologically. Um, but I knew that my anxiety was getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So if I wasn't drinking, um, or on some kind of benzo, like m- my anxiety was just going through the roof. Like it was to the point where at the end I could barely kind of go out into public, be around other people or function unless I had a drink because it was just panic really was the, the feeling. So it was like presenting as panic attacks. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. It was for, I think for years there, there was kind of a cycle of extremes where it, it seemed kind of manageable, but it was like going back and forth between borderline panic and then buzzed <laughs> and then drunk mm-hmm. and then, okay. And then borderline panic. And then, you know, kind of just kind of going back and forth between those stages and trying to manipulate them to fit whatever my schedule was. Uh, but at the end it was like the, the alcohol wasn't really even working anymore. It was just, I was mm-hmm. pretty much in panic, like most of the time until I was pretty much passing out. And then, then it was, that was the only time that I got any relief. And then I'd wake up and I'd be in a panic again. Yeah. Well, from reading the book, it's, you had nerve damage in your arm. Did the anxiety, was that showing up when this sort of physical manifestation of the shoulder pain and maybe not being able to do the job correctly? Is that when that started showing up? Yeah. The, the anxiety goes back to earlier in my life. Um, I think the first time I really had symptoms of anxiety was um, when I was a teenager in high school, you know, I did, I wasn't self-aware enough at the time to really know what it was or even to be able to verbalize it in any discernible way. I just, uh, I felt kind of distant from my surroundings, kind of detached. And I would just get this feeling, this lump in my throat and this kind of heaviness and feel almost like I would hyperventilate, but not to the point where it was like a panic attack. It was just an uncomfortable feeling, just uncomfortable in my skin is the best way to describe it. Um, and I just kind of wondered, I wondered, do other people feel this way? Am I the only person who feels this way? You know. Mm. Uh, and I was also a kid, I think, who put a lot of pressure on myself. I was perfectionistic, had some kind of obsessive compulsive tendencies and just like things to be very controlled and orderly. And that's not the lifestyle of a touring musician. You know? No, yeah. no. You don't really have a lot of control over a lot of things and you just kind of have to show up and do the best you can with what you have each day. And you don't have a lot of time, you know, to yourself or, uh, you know, to kind of set the parameters, the boundaries on what your, your lifestyle is going to look like. So that kind of took its toll on me over time. And definitely mm-hmm. the anxiety and the kind of obsessive thoughts and all that stuff started ramping up, especially as you said, you know, being under the pressure of, of playing perform, you know, putting on a show to a certain level every night. Mm-hmm. And then also all the meet and greets and, you know, meeting mm-hmm. people and shaking hands, signing autographs, uh, doing, you know, in-store performances and photo shoots, you know, and so it goes, it just yeah. kind of never ends, you know? Yeah. So I definitely had a lot of anxiety and it, it all kind of, it, it was, it was complicated. The kind of breakdown that I, I experienced was, um, it was physical, 
but it was also psychological. There was definitely a lot of anxiety wrapped up in it. There was a feeling of just kind of losing control over my body, but also feeling like I was just kind of spiritually breaking down and feeling um, like I was deteriorating in some way that I couldn't even really verbalize. And it got worse and worse till I couldn't play the drums anymore. It just felt like my body was totally uh, foreign. It wasn't something that I could control in the way that I used to or coordinate. So it went from being like a, a joint issue uh, to being a full nervous system coordination issue, which no doctor could really give me a clear definition of what it was. I went to a neurologist and they said I had something called thoracic outlet syndrome, which is an arm thing, kind of like carpal tunnel, but the whole arm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went to an orthopedist and they said I had tendonitis in my shoulder and my elbow and all that stuff. So it was like a lot of different things, but I just felt at my core, like there was something defective in me as a person, you know? So that was really why when I went down, I really kind of hit a bottom. I got really depressed and felt really defeated. And, and when you're drinking in that state, it takes on a whole new relationship. You know, you're escaping uh, the depression, the anxiety, um, just really, I think even sort of just stepping into like an alter ego, uh, a different personality. I would put on this front that I was having a great time, you know, that I, I was a rock star and I was enjoying the fruits of our, our success. But really inside, I was just like, you know, breaking down and decaying. There is so much pressure in that lifestyle. Like you say, it's a lot of people think it's all glamorous and it is to a degree. And obviously we've never um, reached the dizzy heights that, that your band got to, but you know, there is so much pressure and it seems that from an early age, you've had this pressure upon yourself. Uh, reading in the book where you said when your mum first spanked you f- for running out into the road and that you felt you were more concerned about your mum and how that was, how that would affect her. And I thought, wow, that's such a, like, that's a big responsibility for a little person to take on. And then how Adam Levine describes you in the band as sort of the adult in the band, the one that would kind of make sure everyone was well-fed and looked after. And so has that kind of been the theme for you too, to kind of show up and have this kind of, I guess, the weight of responsibility upon you? You know, does that ring true for you, that you had this kind of sense of you had to kind of carry the load often since since early childhood? Yeah, that was kind of a breakthrough I had, uh, remembering that story about my mom uh, when I was in grad school getting my master's degree in clinical psychology, you have to do a lot of self-reflection to become Mm -hmm. a therapist Mm -hmm. because if you haven't done your own work, how are you going to help someone else? Of course. Right. right? Yeah. So, I mean, I had already done a lot of my own therapy. Obviously I was in recovery for a few years at that point. So I was really, you know, in a, in a place in my life that I was doing a lot of self-reflection, but now I was like writing papers about my own (laughs) psychology Mm -hmm. and I was able to kind of figure out, you know, my mom is a, a wonderful a uh, beautiful soul and very loving. And she's, you know, struggled with anxiety and depression in her life um, for, you know, reasons of her own in her own life. Um, but as a kid, you know, she was, she was definitely emotional. And I, I have to imagine that that the effect that that had on me was to, you know, want to cheer her up, <laughs> you know, I just wanted her to be happy. And um, mm-hmm. before I even knew how to speak, I'm sure that was what I wanted as a, as a kid, you know, this isn't something I understood consciously. It's something I reflect on now. Yeah. Uh, but my brother and I were both, you know, overachieving kids. And I think we, uh, it's not that my parents put a lot of pressure on us to succeed or to be high achieving. It was just, um, we, we were bright kids and we were involved in a lot of things and we did well in school. And 
uh, I never really felt external pressure, but I put a lot of pressure on myself for some reason to be, um, I was always the good kid when my other kids were getting in trouble and egging houses and, you know, getting, doing whatever kids do. Uh, I was the one who was like, I don't know, you know, maybe we should hang back. This doesn't sound very wise. So of course, when we started the band and, um, I was the oldest guy in the band by two grades and, uh, Adam in particular, he's a, you know, an ADHD, uh, kid and was pretty rambunctious. And, um, you know, he would, he would lose his jacket every time he'd go somewhere, he'd put it down, he'd forget it. You know, (laughs) it was just that kind of level of, uh, what I, what I saw as irresponsibility. I didn't really understand at that age, Mm -hmm. 16 years old, when we started the band, that there was something more going on there. But yeah, I was, I think they looked at me as kind of the responsible one, the one that was maybe in charge a little bit in the early days, at least I was the one that was going to the clubs, the nightclubs and, you know, booking us and getting us, uh, giving the demo tapes and, uh, putting out the mailing lists and the set lists. And I kind of took charge of all the responsibilities of the band. Um, and I think in some ways they looked to me, uh, to do that. In other words, in other ways, they haven't said this to me, but I'm sure they looked at me like, Oh, Ryan, he's always trying to be anal about everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I can see how then when suddenly you're not in control anymore and you can't kind of carry that load and your body's packing out on you too, it's just like this isn't working and the band are looking at you and this isn't working anymore. Like when you said that they couldn't look at you, they're looking down their feet and suddenly that kind of role that you've been playing is also being taken away from you. And I can understand how that would just feel so strange and and foreign. Yeah, it was demoralizing, you know, I think especially because the drums were like, before I had issues playing the drums, that was my release. That was my coping mechanism. I felt free behind the drums. When I was playing with the guys, it was really sort of a Zen thing. You know, I felt a spiritual connection with them. And when we played music together, uh, I was expressing myself. I was creative. I was in flow. Um, It was cathartic. It was a release. Uh, and then all of a sudden it became very difficult and I felt like I didn't have control over my body and my instrument anymore. And I'm looking at the other guys in the band really coming into their own and, and flourishing and, and we're, you know, on bigger and bigger stages and the world is starting to pay attention to our music. And, and I'm feeling like it's just kind of slipping more and more from my grasp, the ability to do what we had worked for a decade to do. So yeah, it was really um, more and more demoralizing and feeling like it was just slipping away. Wow. Yeah. You can understand why you would turn to something that's going to give you that kind of feel good feelings momentarily, even though it doesn't stay that way. Um, There's also Gabor Mate talks about, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, Dr. Gabor Mate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, he talks a lot about chronic illness and the link between, you know, the body-mind connection, the body-mind-spirit connection, really, and how oftentimes when there's chronic illness presenting in the body, it's there's usually a deeper core thing going on. And do you think that that's what was happening with you? Was, you know, with that, the, the anxiety and then the shoulder issues, do you think that that's, was it a physical thing, do you think? Or do you think it was the whole mind-body-spirit connection thing happening? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was a whole mind-body-spirit uh, issue going on. I, again, that was something I couldn't really even understand at the time. I didn't have the mm-hmm. vocabulary to, to sort of perceive it or express it in that way. But I think intuitively, 
I knew that it was something bigger than just some joint issue mm. uh, or even just a nerve issue. I, it felt like there was something more uh, all-encompassing of my being that was breaking down. And really, the way that I understand it now was that I was at a, at a cer certain point overworked and exhausted, and my body just had had enough. I was being traumatized having to continue to perform night after night when I was in that state, especially when we were started traveling overseas and I always had issues with sleep. So, you know, you add jet lag on top of that mm -hmm. and just my entire constitution was really, you know, getting worn down. Um, and I think that at a certain point, my body just kind of said to me, you're done. You know, mm -hmm. you can't pull the plug on this because the band is in the middle of, you know, taking over the world. I, I wouldn't, I never would have consciously made the decision you need to step away from this because it's killing you. But my body decided to survive. It needed to just stop playing the drums. Amazing, and so, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like his book, When the Body Says No. You know, if we yeah. can't say no for ourselves, eventually our body's going to come in and go, no, nah, you're yeah. done. Yeah, amazing. Wow. Okay, and so so fast forwarding, it's really interesting that you weren't kind of in the grips of alcohol during the success and during all the fame and how it definitely was a coping mechanism for you later on. The part where you get to before you decide, okay, I'm going to check myself into rehab, how was life looking for you then? I know you were talking about you were having withdrawals, but when do you go, okay, enough's enough, I need to actually check in here and, and get some help? Yeah, there were, you know, a few things towards the end in the last probably six months of my drinking, maybe a year, that were just really humbling. You know, I, I had a couple panic attacks, like in family functions where I had to leave. Um, and I had uh, just, you know, some of these really weird things where I was, I'd try to stop drinking and then I would have these strange paranoid sort of phases I would go through and then I wouldn't leave the house for days. And I, I was working out of this little studio, recording music, trying to record music um, in the valley here in LA. And uh, so I wasn't in my house and I was commuting to this place. And uh, one night I went there with no intention of drinking. I was like, I'm not drinking today. And of course, somehow along the way, I stopped at a liquor store and picked up some alcohol, went there and started drinking. I was supposed to be home at a certain point with my girlfriend. She was going to make dinner. And next thing I know, I'm waking up, passed out on my desk in my little studio. And I look at the clock and it's like two hours after I said I was going to be home. And I was like in a panic. And of course, I felt like I sobered up very quickly. And she had, there was like, you know, a ton of texts and calls from her and she was really worried. So I just like, I thought I was sober. I got in my car. I went straight home. And I got home and she was really upset and she started telling me, you know, she was, she was worried about me and, you know, she didn't know what it was going to be for our relationship if, if, you know, things change, but I needed to get help. She was really the one who like was the one who kind of held a mirror up to me. Um, and then it kind of hit me how effed up I was, you know, I was like, Jesus, I just drove home in this state and I felt sober, but you know, it's like, just insanity, you know, just the insanity of addiction. Um, and I didn't know I, I had actually gone to rehab once a few years before that, but I, I, it was kind of just dipping my toe in the water. It was a nice idea and it was a good experience for a few weeks, but it was just like another thing I used like, Oh, I don't need to be sober 
Uh, I just need to learn how to live a more sane life and be more moderate. But this time it was like, so, you know, I had hit rock bottom. It's like, there's no escaping the fact that my life is totally out of control and the alcohol is just getting worse and worse. And I really had to, it's one of those, I guess, like a, a moment of clarity is, is what it was at that, at that moment, even though I was still drunk, you know, it's just like, I'm either going to keep drinking and, and living this way. And I'm going to keep getting worse until I die or I'm going to, you know, just start walking in the opposite direction and see if I can find a better way, you know, cause my way is clearly not working. Um, so I said, what do I do? Do I go to rehab or, and, you know, and she said, well, yeah. And I called my therapist, we called my therapist together and he recommended I go out to the desert here, uh, to the Betty Ford center. And, uh, they couldn't take me in for a few days. So I had like three more days sitting at home and, I, I promised my my girlfriend I wouldn't drink hard liquor, so I got like a case of wine, <laughs> drank, <laughs> drank the whole thing in like three days, and showed up to the Betty Ford Center with like a, almost a point four blood alcohol content. She drove me yeah. out there, so. and uh, and I checked in and I passed out in a in a bed, and I woke up and I didn't know where I was <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my my sobriety journey, and it was humbling uh, and scary. But within a matter of a week, it was inspiring. Wow. Wow. That is inspiring just to hear that. So what was one of the biggest takeaways for you to be in the Betty Ford Clinic? What was one of the greatest learnings that you took from so, it? You know, I was there for a total of two months. The first month I was in inpatient in the actual facility. And then um, the next month, like in a sober living house uh, off campus. And then I'd come on campus. I was there all day, but... Uh, so at the, when I was checking out and reflecting on my time there, you know, we'd done a lot of AA and then we've done, we've done a lot of spiritual stuff. We'd done a lot of, uh, meditation, a lot of different modalities while we were there, but I couldn't really, I didn't know if I had a relationship with spirituality. It was not something that, that I was part of my self-definition at that time. I, w- I didn't consider myself religious. I didn't have a definition for spirituality that didn't include religion. So I didn't know exactly what it was. I just knew that I was, I was submitting to the process and I was opening myself up to this program, whatever it was, but I was sitting with our, our spiritual advisor, which they had at Betty Ford. And, uh, she asked me what, how I'm doing with the whole spirituality thing. I was like, I don't know. I think I still don't really get it. I don't really know what it is. And then I described to her my experience there. And uh, one of feeling connected to my peers and how I was being of service to the newcomers. Now the people coming in the door, I was helping them, you know, showing them to their room and acclimating them to the process and, and giving them just a little bit of my experience now that I had a couple months of sobriety and how meaningful it was to feel kind of connected to these people and connected to this, to life again, in a certain way, feeling awoken to, to the, the world around me in ways and just seeing you know, the sunset differently than I had in years and seeing, you know, the the blue sky. And, and she's like, everything you just described is spirituality. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Oh, okay. I guess it doesn't have to necessarily be a God by, of my understanding. It can be just um, feeling connected to life and to people and to something bigger than myself. So that was the most profound takeaway. It was like, Oh, okay. This is what I've been missing for years when I've been passing out at night on my couch every night, feeling totally disconnected from the world around me and from life. It's so simple. Just wake up, 
and go out into the world and find some meaning and purpose in in connection and and that was beautiful and inspiring it didn't have to be anything more than that really at that point that is so beautiful and it is so simple so how do you keep yourself connected in that way now now that you're back in LA and you're living life and and doing the stuff how do you how do you stay connected well it kind of like one thing led into another in recovery for me and each step just seemed like the natural next step um in terms of what was going to keep me moving forward feeling purposeful uh feeling inspired and and just staying connected to things that gave me fulfillment and purpose in my life so first it was uh once i fin i went home from the betty ford and checked myself right into a an outpatient program back in la uh, called the Matrix Institute on Addictions, and I, I spent six months there. Um, and by the time I was done there, from the the depths that I'd been in with my anxiety, like almost not able to talk to another human being without a drink in my hand, um, I was like teaching the newcomers already, and you know they were they, they were having me like co lead the groups and stuff. So before I even like graduated the program, as they say, uh, they asked me to stay on as a as a volunteer. Um, to, to co-lead the groups and to be a peer support. So I did that for two years and I just, I considered that like the, the most meaningful part of my recovery because not only was it helping me stay sober, but it was also giving me this purpose, you know, and, and, uh, awakening me to talents that I didn't either didn't realize I had or had forgotten that I had when I was in my addiction and realized, Hey, I, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy. I can articulate, you know, the ideas of recovery to these people, I'm a compassionate person. I can listen to them and understand and, and give them a little bit of empathy. Um, and then I can lead these groups and I, you know, I've been on stage. I can, <laughs> I can be a, a bit of a leader in this, in this, uh, area now. And I started getting some really good feedback and people saying, have you ever thought about doing this, uh, professionally? And I really hadn't, I, it had never occurred to me until that moment. And I was like, wow, maybe it's just, yeah, one thing, one foot in front of the other, one day at a time. I was like, maybe I should do this professionally. So I just, next day I, I applied to a graduate program and a, like a month later, I was going for my, my master's degree in clinical psychology. And that led to me becoming a therapist. And now uh, I'm working, been working with clients for like a year and a half. Um, I wrote a book about my story and I'm starting to talk about it and share it with people. And uh, so I'm just like, you know, whatever comes will be, um, I feel like it'll just be the next indicated action, as they say. I love that. And I love that you're so open to, you know, and I think that's part of it to be open to whatever the universe is presenting to you. And I think that's part of the spiritual path as well. And also not having to, I mean, how long do we have to live by, you know, I often talk about getting rid of our old labels and, you know, your label was quite a big one, you know, being the drummer of this humongously successful band and I guess letting that go and then to go and then move on to becoming a therapist. I mean, they're such different worlds to be in, but this one is one of such service to other people. And I imagine that's very fulfilling. I mean, both are fulfilling for sure. How does that feel to go from one such extreme to the other? How do you feel about that internally? It feels great. You know, both, both paths have been fulfilling. And certainly I look mm. back now and it took me a long time to find the kind of uh, acceptance and closure on that previous chapter of my life to look back on it with, with such fondness and respect for what we did 
uh, at, when we were young, you know, I, what, we made an album that I, I still think is, is one of the great records of the last 20 years, uh, at least in terms of pop music. Um, and the experiences that we had just working together and being creative and, and bringing the best out of each other, there was a chemistry and a, a synergy between us that I think is hard to duplicate. Um, and I just, I, I treasure those experiences as some of the greatest you know moments of my life. Um, but it wasn't going to last forever. Certainly not for me. Um, and I, and I have to, you know, I had to reach a place that, like I said, of acceptance and closure and realize that was a chapter in my life. And if I live, you know, the rest of my life sort of either dwelling on that in terms of how great it was or, you know, how everything since couldn't compare to, you know, the heights of that, then I'm just going to be the maker of my own, my own misery, you know? Um, so finding these new passions, finding something that I, like I said, that maybe talents that I didn't know I had, or that were there and I wasn't aware of, um, gave me new meaning and purpose in my life. And it's been equally, if not more fulfilling to be doing something that is giving of myself, uh, being of service to people. Um, that's the reason why in the 12 steps, you know, obviously you pay it forward. The service element is what keeps a lot of people in recovery, keeps them sober because it's a reminder of your own program when you're teaching other people the steps. Um, but I'm just kind of applying that on a, on a broader canvas in terms of mental health, uh, and therapy in general, because I see, you know, alcoholism as just one symptom of the underlying issues of mental health that people deal with. Um, some people find themselves in with a problem, just trying to cope with whatever it is that pains them, what that they struggle with. And so when I went back to school and started studying, and I just found that psychology was, was a passion of mine and understanding what makes people tick and why people get into some of the struggles they do, like I did. And I probably share more of myself than a lot of therapists with my clients, just because I feel like I've lived so much of it that I want to share of my experience. Um, but I find, yeah, I find it very fulfilling to do that. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's such a courageous move. I find, you know, anyone that can sort of give away that, um, I guess, that fame and then and everything that comes along with that, you know, to be able to let that go and then step into something else is a really bold and courageous move. And I think it's amazing. Well done. With the with the anxiety and learning to cope with the anxiety and, and not having the alcohol anymore to soothe yourself, how did you develop ways in which you could soothe yourself when you would get stressed or if anxiety was knocking on your door? Well, at first, of course, it was scary. Uh, and when I quit drinking, I was convinced that I would need some kind of medication for the rest of my life because my anxiety was just too bad. There was no way that any amount of you know, coping skills or meditation or anything was going to uh, overcome the level of nervousness and, and panic that I would feel on a daily basis. But of course I was wrong. <laughs> you know, it wasn't as once, once you got the, the, the insanity of the addiction out of the way, the dependence, uh, the ups and downs, the highs and lows were much more manageable than they had been when I was in that cycle of addiction. Um, it, you yes. know, it's, you know, it's just like, it was terrifying to imagine living life without that crutch. But then when you take away that crutch and your body, your brain has a little bit of time to kind of heal itself, the the highs and lows of life don't seem as terrifying, you know? Yes. I completely agree with that. It's like your baseline level of happiness sort of rises and you can just cope a lot better because you're not feeling so dysregulated all the time with the hangovers and everything. Yeah. 
Right. And, and it's, um, it takes a little bit of time. It was really helpful early on for people to, t- one of the things that was really helpful that I learned at Betty Ford uh, was the idea of post-acute withdrawal syndrome, um, which we're all aware that if you're, a, you know, a very heavy drinker or drug user and you become dependent on it, that you're going to feel withdrawals when you stop, right? It, for some people, very bad. For some people, not, you know, milder. But um, what what they don't tell you is that once you get past that withdrawal, there's still a, a period of time, sometimes for months, six months, maybe even a year, where your brain is still healing from that, the trauma of that. And you might not feel like this acute withdrawal where you're just like shaking and, and, and totally dysregulated, but you have good days and bad days where your brainwaves are just trying to find the middle again. You know, mm-hmm. you might have one day where you feel like you're on a cloud, you know, you just feel like all of a sudden there's just a lot of uh, dopamine in your brain for whatever reason or whatever neurotransmitter is making you happy that day. And then the next day, for some reason, you just feel really nervous or really agitated and frustrated. And you're like, okay, if this is sobriety, then this isn't worth it, you know, because mm. this is what life is. How can I, how can I get through life feeling like this all the time? It's so unmanageable. But I was told early on, like, that's part of the process. You know, you deal with that and you have bad days. It might be three months. It might be six months. Depends on how long you were drinking and how much of a problem it was, but it will get better. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if you're working on yourself, if you're staying sober, if you have a program, if you have coping skills, that whole uh, up and down pattern will start to even out more and more. Your brain waves will find its, its center again. Life is life. There are natural ups and downs to lives to your life. And there are going to be days that are bad days, but your ability to manage them and your ability to work through those days in a way that is not uh, absolutely devastating to you and, and m- makes you want to run and get a drink immediately. That ability gets, gets greater the longer you are in sobriety and recovery. That's such a great thing to note too, because I guess I, you know, I get messages from a lot of people saying, oh, you know, I've quit and where's my pink cloud? Right. Why don't I have my pink cloud? I feel fucking ripped off. You know, that th- they don't feel good. And yeah, I guess it's that I'd always looked at it as a dopamine deficit too, but you, you're so right. Like just this, the brain just takes time to heal. It takes a long time to get yourself back to some kind of equilibrium again. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I think that there's hope in that message too, that it will get better if you're using the tools that you've learnt you know, staying connected, staying grounded and doing all the things that you need to do. And it will get better. It will pass in time. Mm. Another thing actually I want to point out just for people listening, I got a message the other day from a listener of the podcast and she just said that she went cold turkey. Obviously she was a daily drinker and she was having, she had seizures. And I've had another couple of guests on here before, which have had seizures with quitting Mm -hmm. alcohol. And um, she said that that's not something that I've addressed enough within the podcast. So, which, and I was really grateful for the feedback just to, and I just wanted to drop in here as well, just that if you are a really heavy daily drinker, just being aware that there can be some really serious withdrawals and side effects that um, withdrawal effects, withdrawal side effects, withdrawal, like, (laughs) withdrawal symptoms <laughs> thank you <laughs> that can happen and so will you experience anything like that ryan i know you said that you had to use the benzos to kind of chill you out what kind of physical withdrawal symptoms were you having yeah i had i had bad ones uh i mean i would say that i was going through dts um i i was convinced that i was having a seizure once but I, mm-hmm. i'm told that if you are 
aware of what's happening, then you're probably not having a seizure. So I, there was one night where this was actually the night before I checked myself into rehab the first time, um, where I was trying to do my cold Turkey cleanup thing, which I had done a hundred times before, but each time I was doing it, it was getting harder and harder. And I was feeling, you know, just these extreme, uh, withdrawal symptoms that, bordered on DTs, delirium tremens, where I was shaking, you know, pretty hard um, and just extreme anxiety and like weird sort of foggy thoughts and almost like hallucinating. Um, I remember in particular hearing the sound of like the, the cable machine on, on, <laughs> underneath my TV in my bedroom, like kept getting louder and louder as if there was, it was like, it was like an explode or something. Um, and one night I just all of a sudden started feeling like my bo- whole body tense up and my fingers and my toes were tingling and just went completely rigid. And I like my lips went rigid and I, I was like hyperventilating. I, I was stiff as a board, like I couldn't move. And my girlfriend called the paramedics and they came and uh, I was like, I'm having a seizure. And, and he was like, you're tell- if you're telling me you're having a seizure, you're not having a seizure. And I was like, okay, what's happening? He's like, you're having a really bad panic attack. Um, So that scared me. That terrified me. I'm like, you know, and I, that was why I checked myself into rehab the next day. I didn't, I actually went to the Pasadena recovery center, which was, uh, it's no longer there. I wouldn't be talking about it if it was still there. Um, But it was famous here. I don't know if they had this show over there. Dr. Drew had a show called Celebrity Rehab. (laughs) <laughs> oh, right. I don't know. I don't watch TV, but <laughs> but possibly, yes. <laughs> this is like, I don't know, at least 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. you on that show? No, I wasn't on the show, but I, <laughs> I, I had watched the show. And of course, in, this was how insane I was in my drinking. You know, I was drinking and watching a show about people trying to get sober. And then when I, when I checked myself into rehab, I, that was the only place I could think of. Yeah. <laughs> the place on that show. And I got there and I was expecting to be treated like a king, you know, but it, it turns out they had uh, not a lot in terms of uh, to help me that first night. So I went through a whole other night of that kind of panic and I got taken to an emergency room. They didn't have anything on site, you know, to treat me. So they ended up just dropping me off at an emergency room and I spent all night there shaking and shivering and oh, you poor thing. You know, thinking I was going to go into a seizure at any moment until they finally gave me an injection or something. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I almost feel like those kind of experiences in and of themselves can be traumatizing. Yeah. You know, just the feeling of of feeling of not knowing if you're this far away, you know, from from a seizure or from a heart attack or something and and your body just feeling like it's out of control and, and that level of panic. Um can be something that really it drives further drinking because it's so scary that you are mm-hmm. drinking now to cope with the the trauma of that. It's a, it's a vicious cycle that you get into. And I, I feel like I still have to deal with kind of the residual trauma of that. And just the, the bodily uh, memory of that kind of trauma. Mm, yeah. That is terrifying. How much were you drinking a day usually? Well, yeah, like I said, for a long time, it was, it was, really heavy days. And then some days I would stop, but I think at my what worst, was a heavy day, a heavy day. I mean, I might drink a bottle of vodka, like a, a, a fifth. 
Um, or I, if I was being good, I would, I would drink wine, but I would drink like six bottles of wine or something like that. Oh, <laughs> my God, no wonder you were getting the DTs. That's, yeah, that's really yeah. intense. I also, um, love the fact that your girlfriend, you know, she didn't th- like, she really supported you through that journey to get you into the rehab. And, you know, you hear about some people with these big interventions and like, you're out, you know, kind of thing. But I love that you know, it sounds as though she kind of loved you through that. And I think that's really important as well. You know, I'm sure she was probably, you know, putting down a, like a, a firm, clear boundary, but also just kind of, you know, you called the therapist together and it sounds like it was a very um, united decision for you to go into rehab. Are you guys still together? We are. Yeah. Yay, that's great. And that was a whole journey too, you know, for us, because obviously being sick when I was and us being in a relationship was complicated and, and yeah. me, me getting well, uh, changed things, you know, of course it, it'll change things when, when somebody has been sick in a relationship and they get, and they seek help and they get well. And so, you know, it's been a journey for her too, you know, in recovery, watching me get better. And then, uh, my whole life changed, you know, it's <laughs> just, you know, com- completely finding a new path in life and, and new inspirations and passions. And so she's been on her own journey too. She went back to school as well and got a master's degree in social work and um, doing her own thing. So we're both kind of feeding off of each other's um, recovery energy. That's beautiful to be able to change like that together. Maybe you guys will open your own Biddy Ford type clinic. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. You never know if the universe points me in that direction. We'll see. (laughs) So how's the anxiety now? It's good. Much better, much better than it was. Uh, I mean, it's night and day compared to how it was, but I do, I do realize that, you know, anxiety has, has always been a part of my life. Um, it probably will always be to some extent. And I have dealt with trauma that I had a hard time identifying as trauma for a long time. You know, I just, cause I, you look, when you think of the word trauma, you think of somebody who's lived through something really horrific, you know, mm-hmm. a war zone or childhood abuse or, you know, um, and so I didn't, I, I just felt like it was disrespectful for me to mm-hmm. refer to what happened to me as traumatic. Um, but then I realized relatively recently that I was doing myself a disservice by not um, thinking about what I went through as impactful on my mind, body, and spirit on that level, that it was a traumatic experience that affects the way that I experience living in my body still. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I experience anxiety differently, I think, than I did, you know, five, 10 years ago. Uh, but I still do. And I, the difference now is that when something makes me nervous, when something brings up those feelings, my first impulse is to run towards it now mm-hmm. because I see it as an opportunity to grow uh, an opportunity to overcome something and to expand um, my, my conscious awareness of, of, uh, you know, just living in my body and being able to sit with whatever's happening and, um, and deal with it and cope with it and move forward. Because then once I've done that, it gets a little bit easier and I'm proud of myself for doing it. And I mean, I think about, you know, speaking in front of groups, you know, so that would have terrified me just a few years ago. And it still is something that will, you know, give me anxiety and 
even though I used to go on stage in front of thousands of people as a drummer, uh, speaking is a little bit different, but it, it, when I, if I'm, ha- if, you know, if I'm given the opportunity, somebody asked me to do that and share my story, of course, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to look at it as an opportunity, not only to be of service, uh, and give of myself, but also just like, here's another thing that I could get good at that used to terrify me (laughs) and that progress that's growth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, it's so beneficial. I talk about on the podcast all the time, but just being able to tune into the body and listen to the signals, the body's sending you. And rather than having to run away from it, just being able to tune in and okay, what am I feeling right now? And what's my body telling me? And what do I need to support myself through this? rather than needing to escape it with alcohol. And we can save ourselves so much pain, but we grow so much as, as humans, we can, we have that connection with ourselves and we start to have the conversations with ourselves and start that relationship again with ourselves, which is so beautiful. It is. It's, it's really beautiful. And uh, another, another tool that's been really helpful for me is mindfulness. Mm. Uh, it was something that I was introduced to at Betty Ford mindfulness meditation. And it was impossible for me at first because just Mm -hmm. sitting and being present was terrifying, you know? Yes. But as you say, you know, not running away, you know, sitting in it and, and just being really fully conscious of what is happening in the present moment. That's really all that mindfulness is, is just really accepting the present moment as it is not trying to change it. Um, and and doing the the contrary of what your addiction would want you to do you know the contrary action mm-hmm. your addiction would want you to run away or to to uh, numb it in some way to escape uh the contrary action is just to sit with it and just even if it's you know uncomfortable and scary it becomes less so the more you do that and it's mm-hmm. a good sign you know the first time that something feels uncomfortable it's like it's probably something you need to do you yes. know yeah that's right I also, I think for the long time, because I got to the point where I did with my anxiety and my drinking, um, I lost the ability to discern between what was just exciting and mm-hmm. what was anxiety inducing because they were the same sort of bodily sensations. Right. I, yeah. did, I didn't want to, to do anything that made me feel, a, you know, a lump in my throat or uh, butterflies in my stomach or tingling in my fingers. Like that was just like, that meant either one of two things, a panic attack was coming or I was going through alcohol withdrawal and I needed to make that end immediately. Uh, and it, it was only maybe six months or a year into recovery that I realized those feelings are also indicators of something that you really, really, really want to do. You know, mm-hmm. when you, when you go on a roller coaster for the first time, you have all those feelings. When you go on a date for the first time, you know, first kiss, you know, any of the things in life that you really look forward to, and maybe it's giving that speech in front of a crowd or something for the first time, it's usually preceded by all those same feelings, you know, and it, mm-hmm. the butterflies is a beautiful thing. It's not to be to run away from. It's something to embrace as part of the excitement of life. We only get so many moments that give us a thrill like that, you know. Yeah, that's so true. And even if I guess you're feeling the butterflies, if you're in a a social situation and you're feeling a bit freaked out because, you know, having to make small talk or feeling like you're not fitting into a situation. But I mean, that's probably not excitement, but it is the body still sending you some signals to say, okay, there's something going on here. And, you know, can we just have an opportunity to grow from this and and even find some excitement in that perhaps just, wow, I've got an opportunity to grow and understand myself a little more rather than black, you know, numbing it out with alcohol 
or stuffing food down my face or whatever it is that you need to do to try and numb it. Becoming, oh. It's getting that connection um, back again, which is amazing. Um, thank you. Can I, I now ask everyone on the podcast this question? What are you feeling in your body right now? I'm feeling pretty calm. Thank you. I'm feeling, uh, I don't know. This has been a good conversation. I feel good. That's great. Amazing. And if you could go back in time and speak to, you know, yourself, perhaps, you know, just before or just after you'd left the band and given yourself some advice, what would you say to yourself back then? Hmm. That's a tough one because I know what I would say to myself as a teenager. Uh, at that point in my life, I was genuinely in a very low place and for good reason, you know, I'd lost, I was losing something, uh, you know, profound, not just in terms of the success and the, and the whole career, but also just in terms of my identity and everything that was wrapped up in, in who, in my self-definition, you know? Mm. So what could you say to a guy in that moment who was really just going to have to sit with something that was really profoundly devastating, uh, that would be of any, of any benefit to them, um, I think probably I, I, I would, I would, the advice I would give, and I don't know if that version of me would be able to hear it or use it is just don't bottle it all, all up inside, you know, try to express what you're feeling with somebody that has some empathy and compassion for you. Um, because I, I tried to, you know, uh, go through the motions of therapy and things like that at that time, but I was so wrapped up in my own alter ego or whatever I was going through in terms of escape at that time that I don't think I was really letting anyone really in. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think that a lot of people in my life probably were just not even able to, didn't know how they could help me, you know, because I was so lost at that point. Um, but really, obviously I was the only person who could help myself. And the first step in doing that is allowing yourself to just be vulnerable um, kind of try to reach a place of acceptance and allow yourself to open up and it's okay to sit with something that's really sad and really painful. Um, it's, it was reality, you know, and you have to kind of sit in reality in order to find acceptance. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful just to be able to sit with something that is really sad and to acknowledge yeah. that and give yourself that space and grace, I guess, to accept it and just to be with it. Um, Ryan, that's amazing. You're amazing. What a beautiful human. And also, you know, big hugs to your beautiful girlfriend too. She sounds amazing as well. Um, and so your book, Harder to Breathe, will be it's available for pre-order now. Yeah, it releases November 15th, but you can pre-order it anywhere like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, yeah, online. Amazing. It's a wonderful book. I'm really enjoying it and I absolutely love it. And also with your therapy sessions, can like any person book in with you or what happens there? Yeah. I, well, right now I'm uh, what's called an associate marriage and family therapist, which means I have my degree and I'm working as a therapist, but I'm pre-licensed. So I have a supervisor that I work through and I work at a clinic. Um, I have clients at the clinic. It's called the Missing Peace Center for Anxiety uh, in Agoura Hills, California. It's a wonderful place a very holistic approach, as we've talked about mind, body, and spirit, a lot of different modalities there. So I have a great time working there with a lot of clients. And then I have some of my own personal clients that I, uh, that I see with my, through my supervisor, uh, uh, as a side thing from that right now. Um, and then eventually as a licensed, uh, MFT, I'll have them directly with me, but I'm also, uh, I'm just getting my website up and running right now. And, uh, 
I'm going to have information on there. I'm going to do, try to do some life coaching as well, which is nice. uh, more open to the globe in terms of like anyone who speaks English, I can talk to me on zoom like this and, you know, I can offer some advice on, uh, you know, life goals and things like that. So that's a slightly different avenue than being a therapist, but uh, I'm just going to get started with that as another part of my journey. What a wonderful gift you're giving to the world. So thank you so much. And I'll put links in the show notes for people to contact you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Ryan. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.